if there's one thing I've learned over the years that I think is like really true, uh, it's that if you don't do the Middle East, it does you. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast, episode 10. This is Thanasi Kambanis in Beirut. And today I'll be talking to Dina Svandiari from the King's College uh, War Studies Department. And then later after the break with Bruce Gentleson from Duke University about their work as part of TCF's Order from Ashes, New Foundations for Security in the Middle East Project. Dina, thanks for agreeing to come on the TCF World podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we get into the details of the report you wrote for TCF, uh, you, you were looking at Iran and their, the country's security uh, relationship with its neighbors. Uh, and I want to I hear your take on the continuing brouhaha over the Iran deal and uh, the debate over whether to decertify it or, or tear down the deal altogether. How is Iran viewing all this, uh, all this talk in the U.S.? Um, I, think the, I think Iranian officials uh, are... I mean, obviously, they've gotten used to the idea now, but I think originally they were a bit surprised at the idea that we were going to be relitigating the Iran nuclear deal uh, almost uh, more than two years down the line from it. Um, the, the, the entire negotiation process for all of those involved was a pretty painful process. It lasted um, about uh, a little bit longer than a decade. Um, and uh, the last round uh, really took it out of the negotiators. Um, and the deal that was reached really was the only achievable uh, deal that would leave everybody um, relatively unhappy with the result, which means that actually uh, everybody is likely to continue implementing it because if one party works away happy, then obviously it doesn't work. So, I mean, from the, from the U.S. perspective and, and I think from the European perspective as well, uh, when the deal was being negotiated, uh, there was a lot of discussion on ignoring secondary sources of tension uh, uh, with Iran and focusing on, on the, the primary issue of the, of the nuclear program. Uh, and uh, since Trump came into power, his, his rhetorical presentation uh, of this deal, and, and he's not alone, by the way, in his administration of taking this position, is that uh, uh, somehow this is a great deal for Iran uh, so aside from, from the argument that it's a terrible deal for the U.S., the claim is that this is just a, a great deal for Iran, uh, from the sanctions opening and relief that it brought them uh, to security assurances. Uh, how does that look from Iran's perspective? I mean, how, how good a deal is it from, from Tehran's point of view? Well, again, the Iranians are pretty surprised at these statements because from Iran's perspective, this isn't exactly... Uh, the best deal it could have gotten. Iran had to give up quite a lot. It had to reverse track on a lot of its nuclear program um, and has had a lot of constraints put on it that other states have not seen uh, in terms of the intrusiveness of the of the verification measures that were decided upon on the nuclear deal. And of course, what it got in return, which was supposed to be comprehensive sanctions relief, has really not been as comprehensive as it was promised. Um, so the Iranians haven't gotten... Um, well, how, how, how comprehensive has it been? I mean, that, that, I, I'm interested in that because I think there's a lot of uh, either assumptions or exaggerations about of the alleged windfall 
uh, for Iran. It's, it hasn't been a windfall. It's as simple as that. I mean, uh, yes, European and other unilateral sanctions have been lifted. UN sanctions, of course, only nuclear-related sanctions have been lifted. But US sanctions were only suspended. And of course, the uncertainty that President Trump is creating with his, all of the you know negative statements he's making towards Iran, his very um, aggressive anti-Iran stance, uh, is making businesses even outside of the US quite nervous um, about perhaps re-entering the Iranian market if, they're, if they have any exposure to the U.S. market, because that just means that they would put themselves at risk um, of having sanctions slapped on them uh, further down the line. And, and is Iran part of the, uh, been reintegrated in the international banking system? It, it has. In, into the international banking system, no, it has not, because a lot of uh, medium and and especially larger international banks and European banks still refuse to have anything to do with Iran. Some smaller, a lot of the smaller uh, banks uh, are now trading uh, and processing payments for Iran, but usually these are banks that have no exposure to the U.S. market. And and I guess you're implying that there hasn't been a tide of of fresh foreign investment because even though some things are now possible that weren't before, uh, none of the multinationals that really could bring in, you know, come in and build refineries, let's say, or major factories are willing to, to take the risk, given that this might all be reversed uh, overnight. Exactly. So you had initially you had a great deal of interest, particularly on the part of European companies, even major European companies. And you had companies like Total, who uh, went into Iran, even signed a deal with the Iranians, who just last month or two months ago came out and said, well, you know, if President Trump continues on the current path that he's on, we're going to have to reevaluate our deal to uh, help the Iranians develop their uh, gas fields um, because it would leave us open to potential future sanctions. So um, even the, the, the major investments and the major businesses that Iran needs um, are refusing to go into the country at the moment because of this uncertainty. So pull, pulling back to, to talk about the, the subject of your, your report for Order from Ashes, and I think it's, it's, it's probably a, a thread that uh, unifies a, a, lot of, a lot of your work, uh, is uh, trying to understand the regional security balance from, from Iran's perspective. So, you know, this isn't an exercise in apologetics or justification, but just in, in understanding how uh, today's um, unstable Middle East looks from Iran's perspective. How do you assess this picture of Iran as the great bugbear in the Middle East, the sort of uh, interventionist power that is behind a plethora of, of asymmetrical guerrilla groups that is uh, destabilizing rivals in the Gulf and backing problematic uh, or, or spoiler actors in uh, Yemen and Lebanon in uh, Syria, Iraq, and so forth. What's your view of how this playing field looks from Iran's perspective? So there's no doubt that Iran is ca- conducting a lot of nefarious activities in the region. Nobody is questioning that. The point is that when you look at it from Iran's perspective, a lot of what it does is, just like any other country, is intended to guarantee its own security and its borders. Um, so Iran just does it differently to other states because it doesn't have the conventional means at its disposal that perhaps other countries have because it's been under sanctions for the last, you know, 20, 30 odd years. Um, so Iran sees a lot of what it does in the region through the prism of protecting itself 
For example, its involvement in Syria and in Iraq is intended to ensure that um, a lot of the violence that occurs in those countries stays in those countries, particularly in Iraq, and doesn't spill over into Iran. It's uh, intended to ensure that Iran continues to have influence uh, as far as, uh, as Lebanon and can continue to reach its proxy in Lebanon. Um, so Iran doesn't necessarily see a lot of what it's doing in the region as aggressively as perhaps its neighbors on the other side of the Persian Gulf do. Um, it really does see it uh, from a defensive perspective. The only exception to that, perhaps I would say, is Iran's involvement in Yemen. Um, and I would caveat that because I would say, firstly, that Iran's involvement in Yemen is not as intense as it has been pictured uh, to be. Uh, Iran's relationship with the Houthis is not as uh, is not like its relationship with Hezbollah, for example. It's a lot looser, and the Houthis don't necessarily always listen to Iranian advice. Having said that, the Iranians are involved in the country not because they have any interests at stake, but because the Gulf Arabs have painted Iranian involvement in Yemen out to be such a huge deal for them that for Iran it's a very low cost way of poking the Gulf Arabs and Saudi Arabia in particular in the eye. So I would say that that's the only arena where Iran is almost doing it gratuitously because it can and because it allows it to have a little bit of leverage over the Gulf Arabs. It seems it seems to me that there's a real conflicting uh, strains in Iran's uh, policy in the region. And, and the first strain is, is the one I think you're you're describing, uh, certainly in the, in the paper that that we're releasing uh, today uh, is. Iran looking at a at a very turbulent neighborhood in which there are a lot of uh, let's say expansionist powers and often uh, U.S. backed militant movements that are threatening core Iranian interests, and so Iran is looking to secure itself against a hostile encroachment. And this is something that uh, you know can explain its response to the war with Iraq in the '80s and with uh, to, to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the later U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, and so on. Uh, that's that's one one way of looking at it. Now, the other is the expansionist, revolutionary uh, foreign policy that's also been uh, part of, of Iran's approach to the region. And this is, uh, in a way, almost like American foreign policy, right? A sort of exceptionalist, uh, interventionist uh, approach to the affairs of its neighbors that has a, a deep ideological dimension. Um, and this is something that we see in their relationship, certainly with Hezbollah uh, and maybe with some of their more like-minded uh, local partners in Iraq. Uh, and I'm interested in, in whether those are, are simply two threads of, of a, essentially of a realist foreign policy or whether those are, are actually two uh, uh, competing approaches within Iran's establishment to relations with the region and, and to a sort of fundamental view of what a secure uh, neighborhood would look like for, for Iran. So I would argue it's a little bit of both. Um, I think there are two threads of, of Iranian foreign policy because these are the two threads that Iran, the Islamic Republic kind of created when it first secured power um, in Iran. And, it, and, and particularly spreading the revolution became uh, a, one of the fundamentals of the Islamic Republic uh, at the beginning. Um, but uh, today, these two threads uh, do conflict with one another. And the reason for that is that Iran finds itself um, acting outside its borders, but in what it views as a defensive mechanism. Um, and it certainly doesn't see itself trying to spread its ideology in the region anymore. Uh, but others do, because Iran 
uh, and under under Khomeini when he first came to power, carried this very strong, we are going to spread the revolution in the region um, and we are going to lead the Islamic world. And so today it, it actually faces some of the consequences of, of that policy back then in that no matter what it does in the region, uh, it's viewed aggressively in a hegemonic manner and as a country that's trying to spread its ideology. But Iran uh, actually, one thing it does do is is it aims to lead all of uh, all Muslims in the region. And of course, ideologically, uh, Iran is a Shia Muslim state, which is actually a minority, of course, in the region. And so it doesn't make sense for Iran to just advance the interests of the Shias, because if it does so, then it would never be able to lead all Muslims in the region. So this idea that Iran is peddling Shia Islam and trying to take over the Sunnis in the region doesn't make sense uh, from an Iranian perspective, because if it does that, then it won't have as much support in the region. So again, the fact that it has this ideology, that it's been trying to spread this ideology today is coming around and making it very difficult for Iran to, to, to lead the regional policy that it hopes to lead. In closing, uh, uh, one implication I, I take from, from what you've said and what you've written is that uh, at least one, one approach to, uh, to calming the tensions in the region that revolve around the sort of Iranian-Saudi uh, struggle for, for preeminence would be to make moves that reassure Iran from a, from a raw security vantage point. What are some uh, practical measures that, uh, that either countries in the region or that Europe and the U.S. could take to, to reassure Iran in a way that would lead it to calm down some of the moves that have so aggravated uh, other powers? So I think the first most important thing that any country that deals with Iran could do would be to tone down their anti-Islamic republic uh, rhetoric. So that's when I say this, I say this in particular with regards to the U.S. and to Saudi Arabia and knowing that I and, and knowing that perhaps it's already too late for that to happen, because I think with everything that's coming out of the United States at the moment and the Trump administration, I'm not sure that the Iranian establishment believes that the U.S. will ever want anything other than regime change in Iran. But did I mean, does rhetoric does rhetoric matter that much, given that, that we, we saw uh, Obama really softening the rhetoric of the Bush years and then Trump ramping it back up. Uh, did, did those changes in U.S. Uh, uh, tone result in, in changes in Iranian policy or behavior? They didn't result, they don't result in changes in Iranian behavior, but they do result in changes in Iran's willingness to engage uh, with the U.S. and with even its own neighbors. Uh, when, you, when you look at the statements that have come out of the U.S. and the way that the Iranians take it, you have people like the supreme leader that comes out and says, well, guys, I told you there was no point in engaging with the U.S. because, look, we engaged with one administration, the next one comes along, and this is what he says, and now our nuclear agreement is at risk. So it doesn't, it doesn't exactly foster goodwill within the Iranian establishment. Now, having said that, I also think it's important for Iran to reassure its neighbors, and, and this we're talking about regional security now, it's important for Iran to reassure its neighbors as well. It can't just be a one-way road. The reassurance can't just be coming towards Tehran. It has to come out of Iran as well. And one key way that Iran could do that is uh, by, uh, by discussing the Yemen issue with its partners um, if they were willing to sit down with it, because, of course, one of the things that uh, the Gulf Arabs do say is that Iran shouldn't be present in Arab affairs to begin with. So there's no reason for us to have discussions on a country like Yemen. But again, 
Yemen could be the olive branch that Iran could extend to its neighbors uh, because it's not a really important issue for Iran and it's an order of high importance uh, for the Gulf Arabs. Well, we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time, but there's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, Dina, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, we were talking with Dina Sfandiari, a fellow at the War Studies Department at King's College London. She's also an adjunct fellow at the Center for Inter- uh, Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, next up, we'll be talking to Bruce Gentleson at Duke University. Order from Ashes. New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. This is Thanasi Kambanis. I'm joined now by Bruce Gentleson, a professor of public policy and political science at Duke University, who also served as a senior advisor to the State Department uh, in 2009 to 2011. Bruce, thanks for coming on the TCF World podcast. Happy to be with you. In your uh, report that's out uh, today as part of Order from Ashes, you took on the, the sort of our uh, fundamental question of how the should U.S., the Middle should. East, and, uh, and, and you sort of try to get beyond the critique of what's wrong with, with the current approach. I just uh, finished talking to Dina Sfandiari about the view of, of the current uh, regional power struggle from Iran's uh, perspective. Now, when you did your exercise of, of how to rebalance U.S. policy, uh, let's start with, with Iran. What's, what's your view of the correct... Uh, way for the United States to understand Iran and the threat it poses? You know, I think we've fallen into um, the politics of the enemy way too much in our own kind of talking about, you know, inside the beltway and beyond discourse on Iran. Um, Everybody has to, you know, punch the ticket that I'm tough, I'm a hawk. Uh, And we both know there's plenty of reasons uh, that, that validate that and that uh, Iran's, you know, aggression and adventurism in the region uh, its role in the Iraq War and all those sorts of things were not just functions of bad American policy. It has to do with Iran trying to sort out its role. But my sense is that, you know, you really also have to try to see what possibilities are there for serious improvement in the relations. Um, I understood the um, political constraints during the Obama years of feeling that traffic could barely bear the JCPOA. Um, but I was concerned even before Trump won that it, that that one agreement couldn't possibly carry the weight uh, of of the overall relationship. That inevitably things would happen and it would be vulnerable. And that you really wanted to look for opportunities, whatever your mechanism, track two, quiet diplomacy, to really explore. Because I do think we could talk about this more that both sides have interests in a serious improvement in relations. Uh, and um, if it's not possible find that out. But I think we kind of dismiss it out, out of hand rather than, than really test it to see, see what might be possible. Well, and it, it seems like one of the underlying impulses in American foreign policy thinking, uh, which actually connects the Obama era to the Trump era, is, is this feeling, and I, and I say it's more a feeling than a, than a concrete idea, that we're just wasting too much 
thought and energy on the Middle East entirely and that we have this, this sort of exaggerated sense of uh, how much it matters to our, our core interests. Do you, do you think the amount of time and, and, and energy and lives and material that we spend on Middle East policy is proportional uh, or commensurate to its, its actual share of the U.S. national interest? Well, I used to have these discussions with my friends, you know, in the Obama administrations, you know, who wanted the rebalance, the pivot. Uh, of course, Asia is incredibly important, whether it's the size of markets and growing middle class or the challenges of China. But I often say to them that um, the problem with the Middle East, if there's one thing I've learned over the years that I think is like really true, uh, it's that if you don't do the Middle East, it does you, right? Now, that doesn't mean you have to go, you know, uh, make major ventures like the Bush invasion of Iraq or constantly feel that it's about containment and covert operations and, um, you know, uh, siding with countries just because you have a shared enemy. Uh, so what it really is, is not so much how much attention you pay as to what the quality of your strategy is. Uh, and I do think there's a way of dealing with the Middle East that a lot of the articles in your book and, and my own as well try to get at that, that doesn't require as much uh, bandwidth uh, or uh, resources, but gets beyond the notion of, oh, we need to pay attention. We have to, you know, it's in, the Middle East is in addition to, not instead of other regions important to U.S. interests. And am I, am I right in understanding the, the central idea in your approach to be one where a sort of version of offshore balancing, where we, we try to keep all the different competing interests and problems in the Middle East in balance with each other so none of them can become big enough to be a global problem uh, without getting so entangled that we're trying to manage and solve any of these problems ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I start with the basic question that any strategist should, should start with is what are our interests? And it's never a pure whiteboard exercise. Um, but, you know, we have lived, you know, as you said at the outset, there are so many things changing and flaws in American strategy long before Trump made it even worse. Uh, you know, it's one of those periods of transition and a lot's in flux. And so two of the points that I try to bring out is, you know, one is enough of the notion, oh, we must support our traditional allies. You know, you really got to ask the question of, you know, are our interests uh, as convergent with, for example, Saudi Arabia, as they might have been when we were heavily dependent on their oil uh, when right after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and the like. I don't think they are, number one. Uh, and the Saudis will pursue their own interests in ways that uh, are in conflict with ours and sort of reverse leverage. So one thing is to really rethink the relations with traditional allies. The other is to realize that uh, it's not about American retreat or are we leaving the region, you know, things that you and I and others heard from you know, um, Sunni Arab leaders so much because Obama was trying to shift to different strategies. Um, the Russians and the Chinese have interests in the region uh, and countries have interests in relations with them, whether they're economic uh, or, you know, partially some form of military cooperation. And I actually think we need to think of our relation with the other major global powers as a mix of uh, competition, still there, uh, collaboration when we can, and ironically, a little bit of complementarity. I mean, you know, to the extent that some of these countries contribute to stabilization or other aspects of the region, um, we may actually derive some benefits, even though somehow we feel like they're, they're, they're bigger players. But it's not a region that's going to belong to one or another country. There's no way the Russians are going to get hegemony in the region or the Chinese. And it's a very pragmatic approach for us. Countries 
will want to have relations with us. But let's get out of this notion that somehow it's zero sum with whatever's good for Russia or China is automatically not, not good for us. How do we take into account the politics uh, of these foreign policy choices? Because you, you, raise, a, you raise a point that I think is, is very compelling uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, cerebral exercise where we, we can look at our close allies. And you didn't mention Israel just now, but you did uh, in, in, in the report you wrote. Uh, that's another one of the close allies who's, with whom our relationship is, is sort of distorted and out of kilter with our actual interests. So you take these problematic friends uh, the U.S. has in the region, Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, just to name the, the, the three most uh, uh, sort of biggest energy hogs. Uh, and you can, as you do, compellingly make an argument that, that they don't matter to us as much as we act like they do. Uh, and we'd be much better served with a sort of arm's length uh, relationship. But what about, uh, what about the political dividends that come with uh, things like uh, uh, Trump's shift uh, to the right on Israel or Trump's uh, embrace of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, these sort of moves that are, uh, in my view, at a minimum designed for theatrical domestic political impact in, in a way that, that works uh, for what it's intended, even if it causes a lot of problems down the road for our foreign policy. Yeah, I, I think on, both, on the general point about um you know, MBS and Saudi Arabia and, and Arab allies in general. I mean, underlying the America first, you know, I mean, there is an element that's, you know, bash the foreigners in so many ways that, that's pretty awful in every sense. Um, but I don't think the debate anymore is strictly about who's tough enough. I think there's a pragmatism. You know, I did some work over the years um, uh, with my academic hat on what I call the pretty prudent public that kind of, you know, you know, wants to understand that um, they don't want you to be uh, totally uh, knee-jerk and they don't want you to be totally gun-shy. And over 60% of the public gets it that we have to have uh, some role in the world. That's from Chicago Council on Global Affairs surveys. Um, so I think the public is open to a pragmatism and it's less, you know, arm's length than it is saying, hey, you know, MBS is pursuing all these policies uh, you know, Trump leaves uh, and he picks a fight with Qatar where we have a major base and other relations. Uh, he basically kidnaps the prime minister of Lebanon. Uh, he and, you know, people before him drew us further into the Yemen war. I mean, hello? Is that really in our interest? And so I think you can make an argument that gets beyond, you know, I frankly, the inside the beltway notion of we have to do everything is about, you know, American leadership. I think the Iraq war... Um, had major impact about um, at a time where everybody was pulling together after 9-11, uh, dramatically overplaying your hand. So I, I actually think that you can, you can redefine those questions in ways that reach the average person. You know, and the reality from my experience in politics is you don't need 55, 60% support for a lot of the policies we're talking about short of committing troops. Uh, what you have to avoid is 55 to 60% opposition. And that gives you a lot of running room there uh, that uh, allows you to make the adjustments with manageable political consequences. Um, the Israel question has its own politics. Uh, and I think there it's really been, um, you know, I, I think the Obama administration mismanaged it. I think that um, when Obama was reelected, you know, uh, Bibi Netanyahu had overplayed his hand by betting the house on Romney, you know, in the Israeli election, he was still in power, but he didn't do as well. And I always felt Secretary Kerry made a mistake by 
by, you know, allowing Netanyahu and uh, Abbas to think that he wanted peace more than they did. Um, there's a whole generational change going on in the United States, in the American Jewish community, uh, that I think um, is um, not BDS and all that sort of thing. That's not what I'm seeing among students and others, but is ambivalent about Israel. And, you know, you have things like Israeli uh, retired heads of the Mossad and generals being much more pragmatic than BB. Um, I, I'm not persuaded that, you know, that APEC is as powerful as it's made out to be. Um, you know, I remember when Rabin was, even before Oslo, when he came to the United States, when he was first elected prime minister in 92, and he said, he gave a speech to APEC, and he said, I'm tired of you thinking you know Israel's interests better than mine. And, you know, um, you got some problems in Congress. Uh, you know, you have some of your fundraising things, but... You know, we're in an age right now where you take those things on and, and if people believe you're being authentic, I say all that believing that we must maintain a commitment to Israel's genuine security, uh, but it doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they do. And, you know, I, you know people, I, I don't think I'm being naive. I've been around the block enough times on, on the political side uh, to think that, that this is really where the, the politics of Israel are at. They're not totally... Um, where Trump has, 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 has sort of been trying to take them. It seems like if we, if we follow the kind of analysis and prescriptions that you're making, it would encourage American policymakers to take a less emotional and moralistic approach to the struggles in the Middle East and to think more about uh, questions like uh, managing regional conflict and 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 increasing security rather than picking a winner or you know turning back Iranian influence entirely uh, and instead you know seeking to to manage these forces while acknowledging that they're all gonna all gonna stay present uh, and the place I mean one one of the places where I see us really moving in the opposite direction is on uh, on Israel Palestine uh, with the moves from the Jerusalem. Uh, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, the threats to UNRWA, uh, and the embrace of uh, the Israeli far right, and also the embrace of Arab uh, politicians who are, are essentially not interested in the Palestinian issue anymore. You, you write that, uh, that the U.S. needs to redouble its, uh, its commitment to Israel's core security while promoting the two-state solution. Uh, and I wonder from, you know, from the vantage point of observing this from the region, whether the two-state solution is is simply no longer on the table, and we're now uh, in a reality, in a one-state reality, where the question is just what kind of uh, what kind of one state is is uh, is Israel going to be, and what kind of repercussions uh, will that have on Israel's Arab neighbors as that uh, political reality sets in. Yeah, I know. I agree with your analysis. And I see, I think, um, you know, as we've talked about the project with you and Michael and others, my sense of writing a piece like this is, you know, let's just, you know, it's not blue sky and it's not academic or hypothetical, but let's really kind of get what we think the policy is, is get that right. And then, you know, tailor it a little bit to the politics, figure out what your communication message is rather than the flip the other. So nothing I write about, I believe Trump is prepared to do. But really is more saying, you know, what what really is the alternative to Trumpism uh, and moving it away from what's been sort of conventional wisdom, I think, of, of too many people. Um, 
your analysis of Israel, I, I guess my feeling is I, I am not about to bet my next non-subprime mortgage payment on a two-state solution, but I don't think anything else gets the word solution. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how the Israelis impose a one-state and in any way uh, create sufficient security for, frankly, even for their own next generation uh, not to start immigrating, let alone what it requires them you know, the morale of the IDF, uh, any sense of Israel's own morale, what it requires them to do to the people they occupy. That's not a solution. And the notion that somehow, well, let's make it all one state and do it by voting, you know, that's not going to be a solution either because, the, because you know, uh, there are people that, that believe, particularly after the Holocaust, whatever the historical debates about the Balfour Declaration, uh, that the commitment of the international community to a Jewish state um, you know, was the right thing to do. And so, I, you know, I, I don't know that I argue that we should redouble our commitment. I think we should just make clear that, because uh, again, as I said before, I think Obama and Kerry, you know, got themselves, lost whatever leverage they might have had by by demonstrating that they wanted it, or Kerry at least wanted it more than BB did. Um, so that's to me about the debate. I, I The others may be outcomes. You may be right. That's where we're headed. Um but I don't see them any. I, I don't see anything being a solution other than two state. And at the same time, I put low probability on that. But um, if it's the only solution that's possible, my view is you got to keep trying to make it happen. And and that's why it makes a lot of sense that you've approached a lot of these problems in terms of how to manage them rather than how to look for for clear resolutions. Uh, I've been uh, talking with Bruce Gentleson at uh, Duke University. Uh, Bruce wrote a report called Strategic Recalibration as part of uh, the Century Foundation's Order from Ashes uh, project. You can read it on our website at tcf.org. And if you want to know more about Bruce's thinking about how the U.S. can uh, learn the lessons of the past and try and come up with a brighter uh, strategy in the future, you can read his book that's coming out in April called The Peacemakers, Leadership Lessons from 20th Century Statesmanship. Bruce, thanks for taking the time to come on the TCF World podcast. Thanks very much. Good good conversation. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.